Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. For this week's episode, we hear from renowned fishery scientist Ken Whelan, who gave a webinar recently explaining the river life in Ireland. The webinar was courtesy of Limerick's European Greenleaf Award, and over the next 30 minutes or so, Ken places Ireland's unique aquatic heritage into context. He introduces us to the underwater animals and plants you can find, as well as the threats that they are facing. Look at the river in total, along the riverbank, the canopy, the river corridor, and the interaction going on, rather than just the river itself, Ken tells us. And he advises what we, as citizens, farmers, volunteer scientists and anglers can do to help keep our rivers and streams healthy and productive. To give you an idea of uh, the history and the background of these beautiful waters, I think we have to start off by looking at where they actually came from and uh, talk a little bit about the glacial history of the rivers in Ireland. Um, this leads on directly then to the whole question of geology and soils, the rocks over which these rivers flow and the soils over which they flow. We talk a little bit then about life in these rivers obviously and we look at two types of life. We look at the invertebrate life, the life without a backbone, and we look at life with a backbone. Um, in terms of the impacts and the insults that these rivers, uh, in common with many rivers around the world, um, I really don't have time to deal with many of the different issues that are common, as I say, in a lot of water courses across the globe. But what I will talk a little bit about is flooding and drainage. Uh, two areas in Ireland which are very common at the moment in terms of discussion amongst those of us that are involved with rivers and the management of rivers. And it links in directly then with the whole question of climate change and indeed the whole question of invasive species. And then to finish then on a much more positive note, because we have a lot to be grateful for at the moment in terms of the various initiatives that are being taken. Um, and to use a very uh, well-worn phrase at this stage, we're attempting in Ireland to actually look at um, really taking this idea of a bottom-up approach seriously and trying to then train our uh, volunteers so that they can act in a very real sense as agents for change in terms of the improvement of these particular water courses. And I'll end then by talking a little bit about the role which communities can play and which citizen science can play in raising awareness and not just raising awareness, we need to go beyond that. We need to arm our citizen scientists so that they can actually collect data because for so long we've been in a situation where we have to some extent downgraded the value of the communications we were getting from local communities. And certainly as scientists, myself and my colleagues at times may have regarded these as purely observational. And what we're trying to do at this stage, certainly in Ireland, is to arm these groups with the ability to be able to collect real numbers and real data. So where did it all come from? Well, really, we have to look back into the ice to understand really what's happening in terms of our rivers and where our rivers are heading for. And most of us, when we were in school, we will have heard about the most recent ice age, which really stretched between 10,000 and 7,000 years ago. And that in terms of the age of the earth is the relatively short period of time. But the actual um, ice age that we speak about at that time, it commenced far, far, far back. It commenced some 75,000 years ago and indeed was at its maximum extent about 27,000 years ago. And that's what the geologists call the last glacial maximum. 
So that's when, uh, in the context of Britain and Ireland in particular, we know now that they were fully covered with ice this time. And the last glacial termination, when all this started to change and started to end, it really began about 20,000 years ago. And it took a long, long time to actually recede the ice. And it was essentially complete about 7,000 years ago. We have to remember as well that in terms of this last glacial maximum, when these huge sheets of ice were covering Britain and Ireland, they were absolutely immense. And it's only relatively recently that we understood that a lot of the edges and the margins of this big ice sheet were actually marine based. And they stretched far, far out west, well beyond what will be the limits of the current Irish coastline. So there was a huge area of ice, similar in extent to the um, ice sheets that you would see now in the Antarctic. But it's the marine deposits off the Irish coast that have given us the evidence that we really needed to understand exactly what was happening around that time. Certainly when I was at school, these were the types of diagrams that we were presented with as we did geography. There was always little gaps around the um, map of Ireland, little refugia as they're called, where the ice didn't really extend to these according to our teachers at that time. But in reality, that was false because as I say, we know now that the ice sheets went way, way out beyond the west coast of Britain and Ireland. And this whole area was covered in ice. Now, when I say covered in ice, remember that it would have been pockmarked with ice. There would have been thick ice and thin ice. There would have been thawing. There would have been retreats. There would have been uh, um, entrenchments as the ice actually came back. And each major retreat of the ice was accompanied by a re-entrenchment of ice. And there's now clear evidence that we got at that particular time massive flows of water, what are now called paleo flows. And these were movements of fresh water. And they occurred in areas from which ice sheets had long since disappeared. And certainly in my mind, these paleo flows may actually hold the key in terms of how quite a lot of our freshwater fauna of today actually arrived around or in the bays, the current, what we would know as the, know as the bays now, they arrived, the um, forerunners of all of the fauna arrived in these massive paleo flows. And such flood peaks, the most recent of which in terms of uh, documentation occurred about 25,000 to 17,000 years ago, um, they were certainly caused by climatic fa uh, factors, such as very high rainfall, snow melt, and melting of permafrost. But we do know now that the first plant life returned to reclaim the rocky wilderness of Ireland um, some 13,000 years ago. And this is interesting because we'll be speaking a little later about the fish in Irish waters. And certainly the char and the very early forerunners of our brown trout, they appeared about 14,000 years ago in some of the streams and then ultimately in some of the lakes. So this was a real time of recolonization, this period from around 14,000 years ago onwards. And of course, at that stage, we had the remnants of the land bridges and the land bridges before they crumbled away. We certainly know that creatures like the great Irish deer and the giant deer and so on, they came across those particular land bridges. But fundamental to all of this is the geology, as I mentioned at the beginning in my introduction. And geology is basic to freshwater productivity. 
So it's exactly the same as it is in terms of land productivity. Um, so the more uh, the softer rocks, the more productive rocks, they are the ones that actually generate life. And Ireland, with a relatively small land area, has a surprisingly complex geology. And I'll show you a very basic diagram in a moment that outlines that. But in essence, Ireland is saucer-shaped. And the centre of this saucer and edges moving to the east and west coast are very soft carboniferous limestone. But around the edge of Ireland, all around the rim of this saucer, you have these really, really immensely hard rocks. And in the context of uh, the geological timescale that you're speaking about, when you're talking about ice and you're talking about geology, um, the timescale involved is absolutely immense. And the earliest pieces of our landscape here in Ireland were not laid down millions or hundreds of millions, but billions of years ago. So these rocks, some of them are extraordinarily old, particularly the harder rocks. Yet some of the softer rocks are relatively recent, a mere 300 million years ago. And these softer rocks, as I mentioned, they can make quite a difference. This etched edge with these very hard rocks, the soft limestone intrusion around Dublin, north and south of Dublin, limestone intrusions then across to the west coast, but in general, the central plain and the areas east and west of that central plain and down to the south into the Golden Vale, those areas are all soft carboniferous limestone. The, the harder rocks then, the granites, the micas, all of the old hard sandstones, they're all around the edge of Ireland. And there's one phrase I always use when I'm telling people about productivity. And the most important thing you need to look for are fat cattle. If you can find fat cattle, you'll find fat trout. And that really indicates that it's in an area of high productivity, an area of soft rock. So in, those, uh, in, in that landscape, you also have a huge mix of fascinating terrain. But to understand rivers and river flows, you have to understand a little bit about the water cycle. And at its most basic, the water cycle is to do with topography. It's to do with the shape of a river catchment, and it's to do with hydrology, the science of water. What happens to the surface water? But it's not just the surface water, which we're all familiar with, that we're interested in. We're also very interested in the groundwater. We're interested in how water is stored. We're interested in how water is lost. And most importantly, we're interested to find out what damage has been done in the past in terms of these incredible water reservoirs that we have been gifted here in Ireland. So water is retained, obviously, in terms of ice and snow. We're all familiar with the water running freely down into a stream, then down and stored perhaps in a lake, running on into the ocean. And then the water is either evaporated out or it comes out through the trees through transpiration. So at its most basic, that's what the water cycle looks like. But when we look at it in a little bit more detail, we see that there are two hugely different aspects to the cycle itself. There's the obvious aspect above ground, but most importantly, there's also a huge aspect in terms of the underwater movement of water. You have water that's actually stored underground, and you have all sorts of underground streams, streams just below the soil, streams that are deep inside the limestone. And all of these movements of water, whether it's the normal movement of water coming from the ice, as I say, coming down through the streams, 
coming out through the lakes and out into the ocean, then being evaporated back up into the air again. All of this cycle is hugely important. But the storage of the water in terms of storage within, uh, within lakes, storage within rivers and streams, most importantly, storage within the actual landmass itself. This is a very, very delicate system. And to go at that system in a very abusive way in terms of imagining that you as a, um, as a, as a land manager can actually improve on what nature has done, I think is the height of arrogance. And really, that has led to a huge amount of problems that we see today. The other thing to remember as well is that, and this is the first uh, indication that I give you of the importance of working with communities. Um, in the context of looking at rivers, what uh, the hydrologists do is they tend to number the rivers depending on whether or not they are very close to the source. So a tiny little stream where the river is beginning, that's known as a first order stream where two first order streams come together, they become a second order stream. Two seconds become a third and so on and so forth. Under the European Water Framework Directive, very often the national authorities will be sampling, their highest point in sampling will be around the threes and the fours, somewhere in this diagram around that point. But nobody knows what's happening in these particular streams in any great detail. And what we're trying to do is to encourage community groups to actually map and assess these little feeder streams, the arteries of the system. You may very well get a reasonable water quality estimate from that particular sampling point. Physically, you will have no idea of the status of the stream. And what we're hoping, not so much that the uh, community will find problems, but that they will identify pristine areas. These are the reservoir areas. These are the areas that actually hold the biota that will move downstream if there is a problem further downstream. So these are vitally important and they're not really being looked at in any great detail at the moment. So in terms of the rivers themselves, I want you to try and from now on perhaps see a river and a river bank and a river canopy in a different way. And stand back, stand back in the field where you have your great big fat cattle and look at the river in total. Don't just look immediately into the water because everything in the fields is feeding into the river. So you're looking along the river bank and you're looking at the canopy. You're looking at the bushes, and the trees and the conifers and you're looking at the interaction between the river bank and the canopy above it. You're looking in fact at the river corridor rather than looking in the river itself. And you're watching how the corridor moves. You're watching to see, can you sense, there, is it compromised? Are there trees missing from one bank? Is there a huge amount of vegetation growing on both banks? Has it been, has it been really um, uh, developed in a way that isn't sensitive to what the river itself needs, which is a dappled amount of light and shade, which is plenty of pools, plenty of riffles, plenty of glides. That's what a river needs. And any change in that is a fundamental change in terms of how productive that river will be in terms of invertebrates and in terms of fish and in terms of flora. Then you start to look at the in-stream vegetation and you look at the vegetation where the roots are actually going down into the river itself. Uh, some of the vegetation will actually have stems. You're familiar with reeds and so on and rushes that you see along riverbanks. Some will have the actual weed itself will be underwater and sometimes the flowers peep their head up over the water. 
Then you start to look at the in-stream structure. And this is where it gets really important because to create the pools, to create the riffles, to create the glides, you need this very delicate mixture of rocks and boulders. In between that, you need cobble and you need, you need gravel. So you're looking to create this particular sequence, this riffle glide pool sequence. You're also looking for undercut banks because undercut banks are a real treasure trove when you're looking to try and uh, find out what the river holds in terms of the bigger creatures, in terms of the fish, in terms of the crayfish and so on. And some of these undercut banks can be up to a meter in under the bank itself, thriving and full of life. And also in the context of climate change, um, we're beginning to think then that with rivers that have had our arterial drainage or rivers that have been in other ways affected by land use, it may be that there's too much sunlight now getting to, getting to them and temperatures are rising. And we have good examples of this in Scotland, where in some of the highlands in Scotland, they're now beginning to replant some of the big estates in Scotland with only one purpose in mind, is shading the river and reducing the midsummer temperatures. So in terms of the life then that these rivers can actually hold, let's have a little look at the life without the backbone. This is the mayfly. And this term causes some confusion because in North America, um, any fly with three tails, uh, the North Americans tend to call mayflies. And that has come into our particular way of communicating um, the different insects as well here in Europe. So mayflies are really any fly with three tails as a nymph. As a, as a larvae or a nymph. In this case, these are the adults, but they still have three tails. But this is the big mayfly. This is actually of great economic importance in Ireland because we get a, a lot of tourist anglers coming over when this big mayfly is hatching to catch brown trout because it's at that time the really big trout will come to the surface. Some of these creatures are 30 to 35 millimeters long, so they're very large. So the aquatic invertebrates are commonly found throughout the watercourses in Ireland. They respond uh, in terms of uh, the different types of uh, water uh, quality that you might find. They respond in different, different ways. Some of them are very sensitive. Some of them then are extremely tolerant. This large dark olive, this nymph is to be found practically throughout the whole year. Again, three tails and it's a mayfly nymph, but a smaller one. And if you, you, if you can find flat mayfly nymphs like this, like this dragon type mayfly in your stream, you know then that your water quality is very good. There's also a sister species that's hugely sensitive, which is the stonefly, and it has two tails. And the sedge flies are really important as well. They go through the exact same cycle as a butterfly in that you have the egg, you have the larvae, you have the chrysalis, and then you have the adult. In this case, larvae, and we call this chrysalis the pupae, and then the adult, the aquatic stage, then the adult uh, stage emerges. We have these wonderful looking sedge flies that don't have any cases at all. They live freely on the bed of the river. And these are really important because again, they're quite sensitive to pollution. But then other forms actually um, make a very specific case. And in many cases, the case that the, that the caddis makes to protect itself is actually the design of it is imprinted, imprinted in the egg genetically because the cases tend to be very, very similar for particular species, which always to me is, is mind boggling how nature has actually uh, come to that particular stage 
where it can imprint in an egg the actual design of the case of the, of the caddis. There's an apocryphal story about a jeweler in New York who put the cased caddis to work by taking them out of their cases and putting them in with crushed gold and crushed diamonds. And then he started a trend. He started to sell what he called biojewelry. So when the caddis had done their job, he took the caddis out of their cases and he had made beautiful um, uh, jewelry pieces out of the cases themselves. I don't know how true that is, but I love the story. Um, in terms of the pupae then, this is the uh, caddis fly that will be moving up towards the surface to hatch as an adult. They're extremely important to the fishermen because they're a very juicy morsel for the trout. And then we have lots and lots of other sorts of wonderful creatures, midges, uh, damselflies, dragonflies of all sorts that you find in Irish waters. Lots of other creatures like this water louse. Then you have the shrimp um, in different forms, all sorts of different snails. And all of these snails will have certain sensitivities to certain water types. All of them will have beautiful shapes and beautiful colors. And all of them are really important that we retain them in the uh, densities and in the varieties that we have them. Um, we have lots of different bugs. These are really important to the ecology of a stream, but very little regarded because they're not nearly as handsome or as cuddly as uh, some of the land creatures that you might look at. So therefore, these tend to be shunned, but from an ecologist's point of view, they're very important. And these are the famous water boatmen, which you get in still water and you get in lakes as well. And these are creatures that mainly inhabit slow flowing water, but again, are all part of the wonderful mix that makes up our water, our water courses here in Ireland. We have some wonderful densities of these um, crayfish, but unfortunately, the freshwater crayfish in Ireland at the moment is going through quite a vicious trauma because uh, unfortunately, um, a, uh, a disease um, has hit the uh, has hit hit the, um, the has hit these creatures at this stage, and the crayfish are under quite a lot of pressure from what's called the crayfish plague. But hopefully, they're resilient enough to be able to move beyond that in the years to come. And indeed, some courses are still free of the plague. So, just to talk very briefly, then a little bit about the the vertebrates that we find in Irish waters. So the first creatures that would have come in after the ice were the char. The char are a very close relative of the trout, and we still have good populations of char in some of our bigger, bigger lakes. The next to appear then were the trout, and then after the trout then were the salmon. So these are, these are generally the fish that Ireland is associated with. Um, the rainbow trout has made a major appearance in Ireland since the 1920s, but all rainbow trout in Ireland are stocked. We don't have any now, we had one at one stage, we don't have any self-reproducing populations to rainbow trout. Um, the other um, native fish are the sticklebacks, and this particular fish here, the rud, we're not absolutely sure about the rud, whether it's one that was brought in or whether it's a native fish, but certainly the bream was imported, and there's a big discussion going on about pike, but I firmly believe that pike were imported as well. But a long time ago, probably as long ago as uh, around uh, 950 to 1000 AD. So they're with us so long now, it's a case of, I think we have to really adopt them. But we have an immense amount of fish, and that's just to give you a flavor of the types of fish that we have. Just to talk a little bit then about um, about climate change. 
and about what is happening in terms of climate change. There is no doubt about it that waters are getting warmer, the storms are getting stronger, and the availability of food resources in and from the ocean is now under threat. We have very major changes happening. And if you look at the map of Ireland and Britain here, you can see that Ireland is in a very special place in relation to changing oceans and in terms of climate change. We're on the very edge of Europe and we're on the interface between the very warm seas to the south and the very cold seas to the north. So what is happening on the west coast of Ireland reflects greatly what's happening throughout the rest of Europe, North and South Europe. So we're in an ideal position to understand what is happening. But these basic figures here, which we used in, in, in a publication almost 10 years ago now, they tell the story of what did happen. 1985, the Mount of Yellow increased then to 92, to 99, to 2006. And that's basically the water temperature increasing. And that's 2006. That's now 14 years ago. But the big change happened around 1989, around 1989, 1990. Um, we also have had very clear indications over the last uh, 10 to 20 years that we had problems and we have done very little about it. So the Heritage Council, for example, in 2009, they, they very clearly indicated that we were going to see more extreme precipitation events. We're going to see changes in terms of the intensity and duration of these events, uh, the frequency of flood events. So those things were presaged by these various reports and indeed well before that. And yet the action was not taken. We made lots and lots and lots of uh, committees and uh, we had lots of discussions. We didn't take the actions. So then started to look at how we might be able to use the large climate models. And we did a very major study doing what we called downscaling, where we actually reduced one of these great big models down to a catchment scale or a watershed scale to look at what was going to happen out to about 2080. And what we saw very clearly was that there was going to be an increase in terms of temperature, particularly in the colder months. There was going to be very large increases at times in terms of precipitation and there was going to be very large increases in terms of stream flows. A lot of these were very focused around particular points in the year. There was nothing gradual about this. They were vicious and they were violent according to the models. And certainly in terms of droughts, we were, we, we were seeing simulations that were telling us the droughts were going to be very severe as well as the very wet years. And that's exactly what we have been seeing, is what we, is what we were, um, what we were uh, uh, simulating, if you like, at that particular time. As I mentioned, in terms of insults and in terms of impacts, um, certainly we've had our share of those in Ireland. We've been fortunate, uh, certainly since around the year 1985 or so, our water pollution situation, we've managed to improve that greatly. And I think we just started on that, on that rising curve just in the nick of time. We certainly need to be very conscious of it, but I think, I think that's on the upward swing. One area where we're really struggling is the whole question of flood control and flood relief. And there has been a tradition in Ireland of very major arterial drainage schemes because all of that central plain, it tends to hold water. It holds vast quantities of water. So from a farmer's point of view, if you're losing your field for maybe five, six months of the year, you would think it would be a very good idea to lower the bed of the river, get rid of the water and have the land there the whole time. 
So on that very simple premise, there was major arterial drainage schemes all of the, in all of these rivers right up to 1986. These were massively expensive undertakings. Here's some of the major drainage schemes. This was typical of the design, what they call a trapezoidal design. So you took your river bank, your riverbed out, then you put in these slipping banks on either side. You left a very big muddy channel in the middle. You tried to get a gradient in and you got rid of the water as quickly as you could. And this was replicated time and again in many of the very best rivers in the country. In many cases in the limestone rivers, dynamite was used to blow out blockages to try and get rid of the water. This didn't work from an agricultural point of view. You know, it just didn't do what it was supposed to do. And yet, as I say, the amount of funding that was made available for it was enormous. We then got a flavor of what was to come in terms of Hurricane Charlie in 1986. And Hurricane Charlie in 1986, it gave us 11 inches of rain just outside of Dublin on, on a hill called Kapur. And we had seven and a half inches in 24 hours in one particular location on the River Dodder. So the Irish, the Gaelic name for the Dodder is on Dutter, which means the deluge, and it and the Dargal rivers hugely overflowed. Unfortunately, people were drowned in this particular event. And two large reservoirs in South County Dublin on the River Dodder very nearly topped and very nearly broke as a result of the pressure. And that was an indication of the power of water in these big flood events. Hurricane Charlie was very early on, may very well have had very little to do, if anything to do with our climate change issues now, but it did, get make, did make um, a very clear picture uh, in terms of what would happen in the future in relation to our flood events. Then we had this other major flood around 2015, 2016. Again, there were other flood, uh, floods before that. This particular event, and the very recent event, there was a huge clamour afterwards. We really must do something. We must protect these houses. Who could argue against that? We must protect these houses. We must protect that road. So what do you do? You send in the dredgers and you start lowering the rivers where the, where the actual river itself has had a problem. The reason the river has flooded is because of very poor land management in the upper reaches. So this is not in effect tackling the actual cause of the flooding it's tackling the impact of the flooding. And that's the issue that really I'd like to raise this evening, is that we really must find a new paradigm. We have to find a new way of doing this. We need nature-based solutions. We need to try and prevent the flooding and not have just short-term flood relief. And I think the pendulum is beginning to turn now. I think it's beginning to tick and I think we're beginning to see change. And we must start thinking about rebuilding our catchments. Now, the problem is that this is not something that's fast. This is not going to solve this particular problem tomorrow. It's going to take probably a decade or more to reinstate the bogs, reinstate the wetland, wetlands, bring in new farm management, innovative farm management, um, try and get people to engage in environmental stewardship and to adopt a stream and to start looking after the stream because we need to manage not just the extreme high water, but also we need to manage for extreme low water and particularly extreme low warm water now in the context of climate change. One very simple change that we can institute straight away is to try and encourage people not to use the term channels. When you talk to anyone involved with flood relief or drainage, they always use the word channels. 
And this is short, shorthand for what's left after they have done their work. I would argue that rivers are living, breathing creatures and certainly far from channels. And that's something I think that we could start with is actually looking at that. Increasingly then, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a real role here for the citizen scientist because the citizen scientists can actually gather the information that we need in terms of the arteries in the upper reaches of the rivers themselves. They can do a really fine job in terms of looking at what is happening in terms of invasive species. And we certainly have our problems there in terms of Japanese knotweed, in terms of Himalayan balsam, and most recently the invasion of Asian clams. And again, this is fairly common throughout the world where people are seeing invasive species arrive just at the time when the actual climate itself is changing. And in some cases, these particular creatures lavish the idea of actually um, being able to spread and to thrive in the waters as they get warmer. We have some creatures that are on the very edge of coming over to Ireland. So we have these killer shrimp already in the UK and these creatures really do make mincemeat, no pun intended, of the smaller soft-bodied invertebrates that we saw earlier and we need to keep those killer shrimp out of Ireland. There's a very big program at the moment of uh, awareness uh, being run by the Biodiversity Centre down in Waterford, also all of the councils and so on in the country are doing a great job making people aware in terms of the impacts these invasive species may have. And certainly, as I say, I think the volunteers can play a major role in terms of raising awareness in relation to the status of our rivers at the moment, raising awareness of the pristine waters that we have left in Ireland and that with a determined effort we can certainly get to a situation where we can, can at least partially restore these beautiful watercourses. And remember the watercourses that we're restore, restoring have a real economic value. The value of that clean water to the farmers, the value of that clean water to the towns, the value of that clean water to the recreational uh, um, uh, industry that's in Ireland and also the value of the water as potable water of course and water for us to drink and to survive is really to a large extent invaluable. We have been absolutely blessed in Ireland in terms of our freshwater resources and as I say I think that if each of us adopt the attitude of not attempting to actually change the whole world but certainly attempting in a very real way to change our little piece of it, I think it could make a really major difference. Thank you. My thanks to Ken Whelan and the EGLA for allowing me to feature Ken's River Life in Ireland webinar for this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram and I'll be back next week with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.